a couple of weeks ago, we started talking about what it meant to be the Central Church of Christ and what was our unifying message and vision. And the idea that we came to in the first lesson was that the Central Church of Christ will welcome everyone to Christ's table. That was the, the unifying theme we wanted to hear and see worked out in every ministry of our church, in every component of our family, in everything that we are. We wanted to say this needs to be something that helps to welcome everyone to this table that God has put before us in His Son, Christ Jesus. Then last week, we, we kind of drilled down on that a little further, and we say, well, what does that mean? And we said the invitation to the table is an invitation to share the gospel. And by sharing specifically, we said sharing is participation. This is not something we just want you to know. It's something that we want all of us to be able to participate in. And then we highlighted as part of that three ways that as a church, as Christians, we've historically and here at Central been participants in the gospel. One of them was the communion table with the bread and the cup and what it represented. We talked about the death of Christ and the, the powerful imagery captured in that meal that we share each and every week. We talked about baptism and how it, the immersion in water is a burial and a new birth. It's a resurrection. It's the beginning of something new in the same way Christ was raised from the dead. We participate in His resurrection through the waters of baptism. And then we talked about the Word itself. When we open up our Bibles and consider what God has to say, how it is a tool whereby the Spirit of God becomes our tutor and our teacher and guides us as we should go. These things are ways that we participate in the Gospel, that we share in the Gospel. Today, I'm going to go just one step further, asking about this idea of an invitation to a table. And we want to know, with whom are we sharing the gospel? The mission of the church is this invitation to welcome people to a table. The table and the water and the word are these tools we have for participating in the gospel of Jesus Christ together. So who are these people, when it's all said and done, that we are participating with? What, what have we made or what has been made of us when we participate in these things? And the, the answer is probably simpler than you, you might guess. You don't have to have a degree in theology to guess because it comes from the original question about a table. Who is it that shares a meal at a table? And I don't mean sometimes. I mean just in general. If you see a group of four or five people different age, different gender, different seasons of life, but you see different people, four or five people, sitting around a table, eating together on a regular basis, what would you guess they probably are? If you're an alien observer, come down to earth, you'd say, well, that's, that is a family. That's what that is. And that, of course, is, in fact, the right answer. The people we share the gospel with, the invitation to the table, is an invitation to be part of a family. Every poll and every study and every statistic that's come out in the last many years, especially in the last three years, but even before that, has said that despite increased technology and great, uh, incredible tools for communication, we are the loneliest, most isolated we've ever been as a people, as a culture. 
And there's a reason then that this appeal to be part of a family is so appealing. It's a huge part of our identity here at Central. Again, I, I like to tell stories that start way before I get here. And, and this is an example where we can talk about one. A couple weeks ago, I showed you that uh, logo from years gone by, that it was the, uh, the Central family, a place to call home. And to this day, if you go to our website, uh, you don't go to adacentralchurchofchrist.com or churchcentralada.com. In fact, the word church isn't even in it. And that you know, really flummoxed me the first time I tried to find you guys online. I kept trying different renditions with the word church in it, and none of them were there. And for years now, your web address has been adacentralfamily.net. Now, that could be just a byproduct of the fact that Central is a popular church name and that all the dot-coms were taken. That could be what it is. But put that together with the sense of things that reflected in that old logo and different things that you see and hear around here, the concept of family has consistently been a part of the identity of this congregation. So much so that in a sense you could take the word church out and put the word family in and know what it meant. The Ada Central family. That's who we become when we're invited to a table like we are here today. So what I want to do today is just take a few minutes and kind of topically survey some passages in the Bible and ask the question, what makes us family? I say I'm going to topically survey some passages because today I'm going to preach the kind of sermon I don't like to preach, for what it's worth. Uh, my favorite type of sermon is where you take one passage, maybe it's 10 or 12 verses, and you study those 10 or 12 verses all the way through for half an hour, and then you say amen and you're done. I don't like to hop around to lots of different passages. But as I was studying this over the last few weeks, it occurred to me that there is no single chapter or passage in the New Testament where for 10 or 12 or 15 verses, it talks about the church as a family. It doesn't exist, which was odd to me. It made me think, well, did I make that up? Is it, are we not really a family? No, what you find when you read the New Testament is it's in little places in a thousand different places. Never all at once, but throughout the text of the New Testament, over and over again, family concepts are reinforced and assumed in topics where other topics are being discussed. So it might be talking about a division at Corinth, but it will assume that they're a family, you see. And so as I start looking through these, I say, okay, what do I need to know? What makes us a family? First point I want to make is that we are family because we choose to act like it. Family is, it turns out, some kind of choice in the real sense. And I know that's different from the biological sense where you had exactly zero say in who you're related to, right? Go to a family reunion, you know who gets an invitation to the family reunion? Genetics. The, the DNA says who's there and you had nothing to do with it, okay? And you may or may not want any of those people there, but they're there and they're family, you had no say in it. And then how people treat each other at a family reunion. Again, well, we'll see, right? But in a church family, it is almost entirely by choice. 
Yeah, in a, in a town like Ada or most places, you'll find a church where there'll be a couple of generations of the same family here and a couple of generations of the same family over there. But by and large, the only thing this group of people shares in common is that they're here today and they believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That they have chosen to treat each other as family. And that again is so different from the way the world behaves, where in the world, what connects you to other people is agreeing on stuff. You hang around with people who say the same things you do. And we prefer to get away from people who don't say the same things we do. In a church, that's not how it operates. In a church, we have a collection of difference. And we put them all together and we choose to treat each other as family. First Timothy chapter 5, 1 and 2 Again, just a short passage, but Paul explains that behavior like this. Timothy, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. And then again, he changes the subject, it moves on. He doesn't have a lot to say about it, but he just mentions it. He says, of course, this is the way we view each other. How do we act towards each other in a church? When we see an old person, do we see a burden do we see somebody that we kind of have to put up with because they're here and somebody's going to take care of them? And oh, what a pain. No, what we see is father and mother. When we see a young person, a child, do we see a nuisance? Why, oh, they're noisy and they're rowdy and they won't sit still and they put their suckers on the pews and they make a mess. No, what we see is our future. We see our heritage. We see our children. We see people that, that warrant our investment in love and attention. When we see people our own age, do we see rivals? People that we need to fight and cloth against to come out ahead? No, we see brothers and sisters in Christ. We, say, we see peers, not rivals. So what Paul says is we choose, we choose from the very start to treat each other as family, and that reorients every relationship we have. The gospel is turning you individually into a saint, but it's turning us collectively into a family. But we need to go a step further than that, because if that was all it was, then that would be a very tenuously defined family. And let me tell you what I mean by that. It would be a family that would exist as long as you choose to act that way. Tomorrow we may decide, I don't want to act like your family anymore, and then we're not, right? And that's all there is to it. Worse, I think that definition of family is entirely on our shoulders. I need to behave a certain way and I'll choose a certain thing and then that will make family out of us. But in the gospel, that's not how the story goes. Family is a result, no doubt, of some of the behavior that we choose, but it's also, above all, a result of the way we ourselves were treated. We are family because we love and are loved. So in John 15, 19 through 12, or 9 through 12, Jesus would say, As the Father has loved me, so I loved you. Abide in my love. And then in verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Where does the love come from? Even Jesus, who has a right to claim to be a good and wholesome and wonderful person, in every sense could say, uh, I love you because I'm just that good a person, and he'd be right. Even Jesus doesn't say it that way. Jesus says, I love you because I am loved. The Father loves me. 
The Father loves me, and because of that, I have learned to love. We don't arrive at love because we stumbled upon it. We have love poured into us by the Father. So much love, in fact, that it overflows out to other people. The love that we have towards each other is an overflow of the love that God has poured into us. We see this throughout Scripture that love begins with the Father, as it will often emphasize that we are family because the Father calls us children. Uh, that's, don't take that for granted. I know I bring up ancient religions a lot in my sermons, but I, I think it's important. We've heard Christianity all our lives, and we just assume this is the way it is. Of course, God calls you His children. If you look at ancient religions, that's not the kind of language that the gods used to describe the people. It was more like slaves or minions or adherents or things like that. You were the subservient species underneath the god kept in check by their iron will. The gods didn't love you. They used you. They put up with you. They tolerated you, and sometimes they might smite you. That's how the gods felt about humans. But then you read the gospel. This incredible thing happens where God consistently says, I see you as children. Again in John, this is John chapter 1, verse 12. But to all who did receive Him, speaking of Jesus, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. And even that verse is a little mystifying to me. Uh, I made this point on a Wednesday night here a while back. Normally, you can't give someone a right. We, we would say in, in our founding documents, we are endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights. Right is something you're born with, right? I just, I have a right, okay? Not in this case. In this case, it is something you do not have, but are given. And, and it makes me think perhaps a better English word for this would not be so much right, but privilege. Right? It's not something that is owed to you. God owed you the status of sonship. But no, rather, by believing in Christ, God has now offered to you and made available to you and granted to you and privileged you with a new status and a new relationship that you had no right to before. He has called you child. His child. John will say it again in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And so we are. In that language, so powerful. It's very similar language to the memory verse the kids had this morning. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Here, John says something very similar. How much does God love us? What kind of love God has poured upon us that He would call us children? And see that those two verses in combination, how strange those are? God has a one and only, only begotten Son. And it's not you. You're the one who killed Him. God has a Son that is worthy of His love. And it's not you. And He gave that Son so that you could be His children. You weren't born as children. You were bought as children. You were made to be children. You were transformed into this relationship. 
We are a family because God has made us something we could never have been. And He does it through His Son, Jesus Christ, who Himself will reiterate this point in His life and teaching. We are a family because the Son calls us mother and brother, and He uses those terms to describe His people on a handful of occasions. One, which is really fascinating, uh, was read as part of our call to worship this morning. And the scene is, Jesus is in a moment of, of popularity, which doesn't last long for Jesus. He gets unpopular real fast, but He's popular for a little bit. And He is swarmed by crowds in Matthew chapter 12. And His family, His biological family, mother and brothers and so forth, come to visit Him um, with kind of their own agenda in mind. And they come to see Jesus. And so someone kind of cuts through the crowd and says, hey, Jesus, your family is here. Your mother and your brothers are here. And Jesus replies to the man. Doesn't really specifically even address his family that has come for a visit. Rather, he says to the man and to the crowd, who is my mother and my brothers? Who are they? Do you know who they are? And then, again, great narration here from Matthew. He stretches out his hand toward his disciples. And he says, here are my mothers and my brothers. The story is repeated in Luke 8, verse 21, where he says, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the Word of God and do it. Jesus chose us and has now decided to treat us as family. He looks at us and says, here is a person trying to believe the Word of God, trying to hear the Word of God, trying to do the Word of God, trying to do right in the world. That's my mother. That's my brother. That's my sister. That's my family. I'm on their side. Those are my people. And that's a claim that Jesus makes while, as we said last week, participating in our humanity. Remember, He is God who empties Himself of His divinity to come to earth, to put on flesh, to live among us. And what He should have said was, wow, I'm here, you guys are terrible. But instead, what He said was, this is my mother, this is my brother, these are my people. And then He died to show us the extent of that love. We are family because Christ has chosen to treat us as family. And we are family because we have been adopted. It's an important word used in the Bible. Um, fun thing, let me just side note and rant a little bit about ancient adoption practices. In the ancient world, um, status was a real big deal, and your position in society was a real big deal. And one of the ways you bestowed that status was through adopting someone of lesser status. And so, in, in the Roman world, you could adopt an adult. Isn't that kind of weird? You could adopt someone who was older than you. Isn't that weird? Be like me saying, you know, John Netherton, I bestow on you the status of my family and you are now my son. In our culture, we'd say, that's really weird and makes no sense whatsoever. In the, I don't know, John, you signing up maybe. But in the ancient Roman world, that kind of made sense. If one person was, say, an important Roman governor and another person was just a servant, you could adopt him 
regardless of age or any of those other things, and you bestowed on them status. They didn't earn it. They didn't deserve it. They weren't born to it. They had no right or claim to them. It was a gift of someone else to say, I love you so much, I want you to share in my family and the status that it has. That's the backdrop for the language of adoption and the mediation of that adoption by the Spirit. Romans chapter 8, 14 and following, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Hear that? Even there, that, that backdrop of ancient religions is present. He says, what is our relationship to God? Has God come along to make us especially good minions? Has God made us especially good slaves? He says, no. He's not here to make us fall back into a spirit of slavery, but rather He calls us forward and adopts us as His children. And what's the, the mark of that status? It's, now, if I just go around saying, hey, I'm a, I'm a child of God, well, that's great, Ben, that you think that of yourself. What makes that? He says, because the Spirit of God stands next to you and says, this is a child of the Father. And this person has a right to say, Abba, Father, the Father is mine. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. You're invited into the family, and with that comes all of its rank and privileges, every bit of it. Not simply as a servant in the household. You are invited in to participate in family and be an heir of what Christ deserves and we do not. We have been loved with that kind of magnificent love that allows us to share completely in the life of Christ and in His status as a child of God. We've been made and called children by the Father we have been called brother and sister by the Son. The love of God is poured into us by the adoption of the Spirit. We get in a trend here. Everyone and everything that is God says you are mine. And you share something. We are family. And let me close with this thought. Because we are all, unequ we are all equally unworthy of the title of being family. What makes it possible for all of us to be a family here is not because we look at each other and we all say, hey, we all belong here. It's because we look at each other and realize that our place here is a gift. So I'd conclude with what is my favorite parable uh, and always will be from Luke, the 15th chapter. There's a story of a son who takes his possessions and goes off into a far country and wastes it. We call him the prodigal son. The text says, when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. He says, I had something, I threw it away, and now the status I wish I had was not sonship. He can't even imagine he could be a son again. But maybe, if he begged really nice, he could be a servant, and that would be better than he's got right now.
I will arise and go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand. Shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. The father has no intention in the little charade that the son has all worked out in his head. He's got this little speech he's going to give. He starts his speech and the father says, no. You will have a place here. And it won't be because you deserve it. And it won't be because you earned it. And it won't be as a servant. You're going to put the family ring on your hand. You're going to put my best robe over your shoulders. And we're going to celebrate that you're here. Not because you belong here or that you are earning a place here, but because you are loved. For this my son was dead and is alive again. is lost and is found. And they begin to celebrate. You are here and you are family because God loves you that much. And when we say we want every person to be welcome to Christ's table, what we are saying is we in our lives have experienced the abundance of the love of God and we would love to share that also with you. We want every person under heaven to sit down at that table, to partake of that meal, to know that God and that love. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? Our Father, thank You for this love we have not deserved. Thank You for calling us Your children. Thank You for sending us Your Son. Thank You for pouring forth Your Spirit. Thanking You for the constant reminder that we are family only because of your love for us. Let us never take that for granted and let us extend that invitation of family over all the earth. As we pray in the name of Jesus, your Son. Amen.